We'll back in. Uh, we'll go back to First Samuel chapter twenty-eight. As we continue to follow Saul and David through these difficult years in the history of Israel, we see from almost the very beginning of First Samuel, um, when at least when Saul and David are introduced, we see David's star rising, if you will, and contrasted to that Saul's star falling. And the author of 1 Samuel, of course, is a master storyteller. In chapters 27 through 31, he's, he's woven a, a perfectly coordinated narrative. And I just want to show you a little bit about it before we read chapter 28. What you're seeing in chapters 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31 is the great contrast between Saul, who's been rejected, and David, who's been chosen. Um, you see the contrast in their attitudes, in their problems. Uh, neither one has been perfect in their decisions, and yet in both we can learn great things uh, for our own lives and the church, and in both we see God's glory manifest. We see one that turns to God in the midst of trial and hardship, even in the midst of his own mistakes, and we see the other who does not. One seeks hard after God, and one only makes uh, a token effort to seeking after God. And in this text, in 1 Samuel 28, we know that it's been inserted into the kind of the, the chronological narrative for thematic purposes. And I want to show you why. Um, in chapter 28, this is Saul, who is the night before the battle with the Philistines. Saul goes to the medium of Endor, the witch of Endor, and asks for Samuel to be brought back from the dead. We know this happens right before the battle. So in 1 Samuel 27, the chapter before this, we talked about David. He has a huge problem. He went to live with the Philistines. He's living now with the enemies of God. And I guess I could say he's living with God amidst the enemies of God. Saul in chapter 28 is living without God, but he's in the midst of God's people. See the difference? And then in chapter 29 and 30... We see David saved by the enemies of God. In chapters 29 and 30, the Philistines are going off to this battle. So we back up a couple weeks and we see them preparing to go to this battle. And they ask David to come with them. And David says he's going with them to fight against Israel. What a mess. And yet David is actually saved by the enemies of God. He's saved by the Philistines who say, we won't have David fighting with us. Because what if he changes his mind and what if he turns and then we'll have Israelites in the front and in the back. So they made him stay. In chapter 31, we see the battle itself. Whereas David was saved by the enemies of God, the Philistines, we see Saul killed by the enemies of God. So what happens in chapter 28 that we'll read today actually is the night before the battle, which actually happens in chapter 31. But the whole point in why the the author put these um, chapters in the order that he did, put these narratives in the order that he did, is to show the contrast between David and Saul. So we'll see that very, very clearly. So last time we saw in chapter 27, David move in with the Philistines. And in 28 verses 1 and 2, which we also read last time, that the Philistines gathered their forces together for war against Israel. And the king said to David, 
you will go out with us. And David said, you know I can do it. You'll see what I can do. And the king of the Philistines said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. As I said, what a mess David has gotten himself into. So in chapter 28, we see Saul being confronted by the Philistines um, the night before the battle. So please remain seated. I'll I'll read the entire chapter, um, starting with verse 3. This is God's holy word for you tonight. Beginning in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put put out the mediums and the necromancers from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shinum, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? And, but Saul swore to her, By the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see, woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, 
Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Therefore, now therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Let us pray. Holy God, what what a terrifying text to read. We pray that we would receive this warning and also this encouragement to pursue you today, to not harden our hearts against you as Saul did. Lord, help us. Help us as we read this text. Help us as we study these words. Encourage us and strengthen us. By the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is much, as I continue to to point out, I believe, much to be learned from texts just like this and from this one. I think we should avoid the thought that although this is about Saul and his wickedness and his rebellion against God, that we're somehow better than him. We would never do any of the things that Saul did. We would never act in that way and forsake God in in the ways that we've seen Him do. And really, as you read of men and women and their wickedness throughout the Scriptures, the whole point of these texts is probably just the opposite. It's that we recognize that within us lies all kinds of evil and wickedness. And apart from the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, but for the grace of God go we. Our human nature is to compare ourselves so much more favorably to these kinds of people and these kinds of stories, these kinds of narratives of Scripture. And I think the reality for all of us is that we are much more like them than we like to think. However, there are lessons that we are to be learned, that are to be learned from even a narrative as terrifying as this. Uh, And I really want us to focus on our response to fear. Our response to fear. I don't know exactly um, what the future holds. None of us do. I'm no prophet. Um, But I know that something that... I don't know that I'm particularly courageous either. But I know that's something that has burdened my heart constantly for the church of God, not just Meadow Creek, but all of God's church, is that we be found faithful and courageous in a day of trial and tribulation. We have great freedoms now, of course, and we enjoy them. We're here meeting, and all over this country, people like us are meeting freely and saying anything from the pulpit. But that has not always been the case. And someday, maybe in our lifetimes, I hope not, but someday we may be in a place where we're terrified. And what should we do? Meadow Creek will be courageous. We will be. Not just men, men and women, 
young and old, we will be courageous because of the Holy Spirit. This is a burden of my soul, that we be found faithful and courageous when the day of trial comes. Well, let's look at this narrative and let's talk about Saul. And let's talk about David as well. Verse 3 says, Samuel died and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah. This is just a reminder that Samuel's dead. We were told earlier in this, in this particular um, book that Samuel had died. And it's just a reminder because of what happens later, of course. Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. This is important context as well. Although Saul was an antichrist, you remember he killed the priests of Nob. He killed all of God's priests in that one city. A huge portion of God's servants serving as priests, serving the people of God in that capacity were killed by Saul. He's an enemy of God. He's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's still going through the motions of worship. Outwardly religious, though inwardly self-serving and hostile to God. He wants whatever he can get from these kinds of, 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 of worship activities. He wants to, to seek after God, to see what he should do. He calls up Samuel not to repent, but to see what he should do. He's very selfish in the way he seeks to serve God. It's not about repentance. It's not about serving God faithfully. It's about finding out everything he can for his own selfish needs. Granted, he is the king, and he does feel the weight of that, I'm sure. But he's not leading the people in repentance. He's not leading the people to be cleansed with hyssop. He's not leading the people to have a new heart. So everything, I know it, it is certainly grieving to see Saul acting in this manner. We should also see our own selves potentially acting in this manner. And yet we can also see God's glory even in these events. And hopefully tonight I'll show you how. Verse 4, we see the Philistines had come and assembled at Shunem, and Saul had gathered Israel at Geboa. So the Philistines, uh, if you remember the geography of Israel, um, it's kind of a north-south country, running country, and it still is. And let's see, on the eastern coast, sorry, on the western coast, there's a sea, and right on the sea is where the Philistines lived. And Gaza, if you've heard of the Gaza Strip, that's Philistine, I mean, it's Israelite territory, it always was, but they were not able to drive the Philistines out. So Gaza, Eskelon, Ziklag, Gath, all of these cities are Philistine cities, five important cities right in that same area on the coastline. What will we learn from verse 4 is they're no longer on the coast. They've invaded the center of Israel. So there were two primary north-south highways, highways of trade, and that's what made Israel really a, a valuable piece of real estate all through the history of the world. And what the Philistines have done is they basically come from the sea, come down and turned into the middle of Israel to cut off that trade. They're slicing Israel in half. They're right in the middle of the, the land of God and the people of God. He's cutting the tribes of Israel 
right in half and also taking control of the King's Highway, the trade routes that link Africa to Asia. Where exactly are they? It's about 15 miles southwest from the Sea of Galilee. You can go and visit this battle site. You can see kind of where the battle happened. Uh, We can get really close. But they've invaded the center of Israel's territory. Saul, as the king, has to follow. They're invading his land. So this is where we are. In verse 5, Saul sees the army of the Philistines and he's terrified. He's afraid. His heart trembled greatly. He saw the vast army in front of him and probably chariots and horses and all the technology that modern um, armies could, or those armies could have, an integrated army. And remember, it wasn't too long ago that Israel didn't even have swords. Remember who had the swords? Saul and his son Jonathan. That's it. And that wasn't too many years ago. So now, of course, after Saul's um, rise to kingship, he seems to have armed the army in some sort because they can go out and meet this vast army of the Philistines. We see Saul shown as, once again, terrified. His heart trembling greatly. Again, for a Hebrew language, for a Hebrew narrative, you could say the same thing in one or two words. So to go on and on about it, his heart was terrified. He was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. It's to emphasize the point that the man is really, really scared. In previous similar situations, the army outnumbered greatly. We see great courage from Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan and one guy, his armor bearer, they they walk up and fight the entire army. In a similar previous situation, we see a young man, David, fighting the giant Goliath. And we continue to have Saul painted by the author of 1 Samuel in a very lesser light. He was so afraid, his heart trembled greatly. It's just when we were first introduced to Saul. Remember, they made him king and what did he do? He ran and hid. They've just made you the king. He runs and hides. This is the same picture of Saul that we're given over and over and over again. Entering into combat is terrifying. Everyone who's ever been in combat will agree. Saul has reason to be afraid. He's a combat veteran. He knows the fear of battle. And remember, even after all of this, he still goes to battle and dies. So he's not so terrified that he won't fight, but he is terrified, greatly terrified. He reacts to the fear. Outwardly, it seems correct at first, but inwardly his heart is wrong. He's not showing courage. There's a small book in the back by J.C. Ryle called Why Were Our Reformers Burned? I commend it to you. It's a little booklet. It's wonderful. But he goes through and shows all the English reformers who were burned by Bloody Mary. Um, these were just godly men. They were um, the most godly and highest ranking clergy in England. Um, Hooper and Bradford and Cran- Cranmer and Ridley and 
So many others. I think overall there were 208 people burned at the stake during her short reign. A number of them were women. 50 or so were women. I think seven or eight were children under the age of 18. Burned. Why? Because they would not submit to Roman Catholic Catholic doctrine at all. They held forth to the, to the Reformers. They held strong to the Reformers' teaching. And they were not going to bend. They showed great courage. The very first man who was to be burned was uh, a pastor in London. Everyone knew this man. He was well-loved. Uh, and as he walked toward the stake, everyone wanted to see what's going to happen. Is he going to submit to this? Is he going to run? Is he going to recant? Everyone came out to watch. Thousands and thousands of people. And he walked up to the stake. He prayed for the people. And he prayed for the land. And he courageously faced the burning without a cry. Without a struggle. was burned to death. Why did he have great courage? Why did Saul not? Why did David have courage facing Goliath? Why did Saul not? It's not a matter of the numbers of people around you opposing you. It's not a matter of the size of the enemy. It's not by might or power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Saul is certainly outnumbered. It certainly seems like they're doomed to failure. But he's forgotten something that's very important. Who has called him? God. Who is with him? God. Who is his God? The Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And yet Saul is scared. He's terrified in his soul. It's more than just being scared. He's fearful without a hope of God without the courage that God gives. And fear without God's courage is cowardice. The reality is that cowardice is roundly rebuked all through the Scriptures. Even in Revelation chapter 21, cowards are cast out of God's presence. And that's just not men who fight and carry swords. That's all people, men, women, are called to be courageous. As the people of Israel walked into the promised land to fight the giants that lived there. God told to Joshua and all the army through Joshua, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified or dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you're going. You see the reason for courage is God is with us. That's the promise of God's church is that God is with us. So certainly we can be afraid. When life happens, we can be afraid. I think that's our application is fear is a natural result to anything that might harm us or harm our family or harm our church. Fear is natural. But what you do with that fear should be go to God who is with you and He will give you courage. It's for this reason that the the martyrs could walk to the stake and not be afraid. That they would look forward to dying and that they would be with God in heaven. Ridley told Cranmer, uh, was it Cranmer? 
No, Ridley told, it was another, Latimer, thank you. Ridley told Latimer as they, they were burned together. And I think Latimer was an old man, 80, and Ridley was younger. And they were tied to the same stake and chain wrapped around them. And he looked over his shoulder and said, Latimer said, Master Ridley, play the man. For today we will be with our Savior in paradise. Where did that courage come from? Are they just really strong people? No. They have the Holy Spirit within them. He gave them the grace and the courage to face the threat. So courage is also a common theme through Scripture. We should be men and women of courage because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I was thinking of another king who faced similar odds, um, not in Scripture. Henry V and the Battle of Agincourt. It happened on, uh, they called it St. Crispin's Day. And interestingly enough, it's when Crispin and Crispinian, two twins, were martyred in 286. On that very day, Henry V, with about 6,000 men, faced the French army of about 20,000 men. And one, I was going to read part of the poem to you, but I'm not. You can read Shakespeare yourself. And we think, many think, that Henry V may have actually been a Christian, which would explain his courage, but we don't really know. But the point is, he faced the same overwhelming odds that Saul did, and he responded very differently. Saul seems to lack the same confidence in the Lord. And this courage could only be found in God, and God did not answer. Saul inquired of the Lord, and it didn't, nothing happened. He, he used whatever priest was around to inquire of the Lord, nothing. Prophets, nothing. That's verse 6. Well, maybe it's because he's killed all the priests that God isn't answering. But the Lord has rejected Saul. So Saul decides to use some evil magic, some demonic magic to raise Samuel from the dead, which was forbidden by God. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 13, Moses told the people when they go into the promised land, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So these nations leaned on demonic powers rather than on God. And don't think that this doesn't still happen around the world today. It's not that the supernatural doesn't exist. Demons are real. They don't have perfect knowledge, but they're supernatural. Idol worship throughout the world has always been backed by demons. So it's not that when he went to a medium, he's going to some soothsayer who's just like charming a snake or something. This is real demonic stuff. It's supernatural. It's satanic. It's an abomination to God. 
And for these kinds of wickedness, the Canaanites were to be destroyed. So it's not that he's just so desperate that he had to do this. It's another example of his wickedness. This wickedness is like the serpent slithering into the Garden of Eden. God's holy land, the inheritance he's given his people, is still inhabited by people who practice this kind of magic. And it's interesting in verse 7 that as soon as Saul says, find me a medium, find a witch who can do this, they immediately know, oh, there's one right over here. Certainly it hasn't been too thorough, this casting out of mediums and magicians from the land. And verse 8, you may not catch this directly from the text, but we know it from the geography that when Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went to this place where this woman was, he's actually coming very close to the Philistine army to get there. So he's, he's risking much to go talk to this woman. And she's certainly afraid to do what he says because of the edict of Saul. She's a bit skeptical. She doesn't want to be trapped into something. But the circumstances are what they are, and he convinces her to do this, although she may not have believed the disguise completely. And when the woman sees Samuel, she cries out with a loud voice. She says, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. It seems that this is a bit of a a contradiction. Samuel seems to actually have risen from the dead using these black arts, this, this magic. This is certainly an exception to God's order in the world. We die and then we face judgment. There's no coming back. And when that happens, if there's a seance that you've heard about and someone sees a loved one who's come back or something, it's almost certainly demonic. It's an impersonation. There's no indication in Scripture except for this one instance that God has ever allowed people to move back and forth between the worlds because an evil person calls them back using demons. No. And yet all that said, it does appear that God in His providence allowed Samuel to come back from the dead. But not as Moses and Elijah came to encourage Jesus before the cross, not as an encouragement, but again as a prophet of judgment and rebuke to Saul. And to remind him that judgment awaits him. That's why Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? Why have you brought me up? And I think this is probably one of the most horrible and terrible scriptures. It's true. It's inspired, certainly. But what a horrible thing Saul says. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. He's right, and it's dreadful. Well, what's happened? In the day when he was able to repent, he rejected repentance. In the day when he should have turned to God, he rejected God. And God allowed his heart to be hardened. As Romans 1 says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. Eventually, there comes a time when repentance is not possible. You've heard the truth enough. You've rejected it enough. You've pursued wickedness enough. And there's no more repentance for you. Hebrews 6 talks about this. Saul was like that one who had once been enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, 
shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's word, and then despised it and traded all of it, like Esau, for a bowl of soup, for his own selfishness and his own desires. He was given such great gifts by God, leadership, prophetic help, Samuel, and he was holding the Son of God up to contempt again and again. And now it's impossible for Saul to come to repentance. And Samuel tells him that much. Samuel says, why do you ask me? The Lord has turned away from you. The Lord has become your enemy. And he reminds him of of the first cause of his rejection. He was told to do something for God to destroy the Amalekites, and he doesn't do it. He desires to please the people rather than to to obey God. And remember in 1 Samuel 15 what Samuel tells Saul. Again, the irony is palpable. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel tells Saul, you should have obeyed because rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And now here's Saul engaging in witchcraft. The sin has come full circle. Who Saul is, is known by all. And he says, tomorrow you shall be with me. In other words, you will be dead like me. And again, there's more irony in verse 20. Saul fell full length on the ground in fear. The Hebrew is the fullness of his height. He fell on the ground in fear. Remember how tall Saul is? He's a a head taller than everyone else. So what the Hebrew author is saying is that this giant of a man, you would think by his physical stature, he should be very courageous. He has fallen headlong onto the ground. All seven feet of him, or however big he was. He's terrified. And I'll close with this thought. Dr. Ralph Davis makes an interesting observation about the last verses of the chapter that give us hope. Saul refuses to eat. He said, I will not eat. But the woman and his servants convince him that he should eat. So he took, she took flour and kneaded and baked bread unleavened bread and put it before Saul and servants and they ate and they rose and went away into the night and Dr. Davis reminds us that there's another man who took a morsel of bread and arose and went away into the night and that's Judas Iscariot in John chapter 13 where it says after receiving the morsel of bread he immediately went out and it was night Saul and Judas seem to be entering a time of terrible darkness. And this is part of God's judgment on their wickedness. Too much, much has been given to them and much is required of them and they have failed miserably. And you know they both commit suicide in the end without hope. But there was another who strode out into the darkness. He hung on the cross for three hours and the whole land went dark in the middle of the day. And at the end of it, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The difference is that he continued to pursue his father. He continued to have hope in his father. He was not ultimately rejected by his father. And through it all, he trusted his father. And this is the thing that marks David from Saul as well. David makes stupid mistakes and stupid decisions. And David is chased and threatened just as Saul is. But David continues to trust God. 
He continues to come back to God. God gives him courage through the difficulties that he's facing. I don't know what tribulations face us as a church in the future. It may be external. It may be internal. It doesn't matter. But whatever it is, I know that we will be courageous because of the Holy Spirit. We can respond to our trials like Christ in the face of trials because of the Spirit of Christ in us, we can turn to God and keep turning to God and have courage even in the midst of great tribulation. So we should be courageous because of God. We should trust in the work of Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. He should have been Saul's hope, and he certainly was David's hope. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have placed us in a world that is not hopeless but is filled with hope because of Jesus Christ. We thank you that although our enemies surround us and outnumber us in so many ways, we don't have to be like Saul without hope, without courage, without confidence. We can be like David. We can be like Christ. We can face difficult times. We can face persecution and even death with courage because we know whom we have believed in. And we're persuaded that you are able to keep us until that day. Fill our hearts with courage, Lord. And help us to seize this day as a day of repentance. Let us not continue to ignore your word and walk away from your word, thinking that we can repent tomorrow, we can change tomorrow, we can do it some other day. Lord, if you are calling any to repentance, may today be the day of our salvation. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.